Once again, this morning, we return in our studies of Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to be considering the dominion that God gave unto man as he appointed him to be Lord, as it were, over creation. And later on in the chapter 2, we read about how he was assigned specific tasks to take care of God's creation. But I want to read in particular from Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Before we consider some of what we have just read, let us pray that God will give us understanding of his truth. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that You have given us this account of that which none of us was around to observe, but you were there because you were the one that did these things. And we are astonished as we read the particular place that you assigned unto man. And as we have meditated upon that psalm that we just sang, what is man that you are mindful of him? Why would you do this for such creatures that would soon rebel against you? And yet you gave great honor, you gave great authority to those that you created in your image. And we pray that you would teach us how that authority is to be used, how we are to reflect you before those that are around us. Help us, O Lord, with the Spirit of God even now as we open up your word. We pray it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. The 19th century British politician and historian, Lord Acton, he's probably best known for his saying, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. And to a great extent, history validates the truthfulness of that saying, And so it's not surprising that even before Lord Acton's assertion, there are others that had made previously similar statements. And even though he coined the very words that I just read to you, he did not invent the idea. For instance, William Pitt the Elder, British Prime Minister from 1766 to 78, in a speech to the House of Lords in 1770, he said this, Unlimited power is apt to corrupt the minds of those who possess it. Now, whether or not Lord Acton was aware of that saying of Mr. Pitt or others that have been made like it previously, we don't know. But repeatedly, literature and history has illustrated and validated his assertion. Power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. In the epic poem called Beowulf, written sometime before the 11th century, there's a lot of debate about when it was actually composed. It's written in Old English and then translated. Well, in this poem, King Hrothgar of Denmark enjoys a prosperous and successful reign. He builds a great mead hall called Herod. And his warriors then gathered together in that hall to drink and receive gifts from their Lord and listen to the stories sung by the bards. But the jubilant noise from the Herat angers Grendel. He's a horrible demon that lives in the swamplands of Hrothgar's kingdom. And Grendel terrorizes the Danes every night. He kills them. He frustrates their efforts to bring him unto, uh, to, to fight back against him. But eventually there is a young warrior who's named Beowulf and he hears of Hrothgar's terrible plight. And inspired by the challenge, he sails to Denmark with a small company of men determined to defeat Grendel 
and determined to put an end to his reign of ruthless terror. And in this story, and here's the point that I'm getting to here, the motive behind Grandel's assaults on this helpless kingdom was this perverse craving for power. He hates it if anybody else has power that maybe diminishes his own power. He craves the sense of power that he enjoys by unleashing evil and destruction upon others. He's a perfect example of that saying, unlimited power corrupts absolutely. Disastrous results from this kind of a craving for power have played out time after time throughout history. Think of the horrors unleashed by the Jews, or on the Jews, I should say, and on the rest of the world by Hitler. Think of the bloody murder of millions under communists in Lenin and by Stalin in Russia, by Mao in China, by Kim in North Korea. Astonishing to me why we keep on wanting to go back to this. It's killed over 100 million people. One of the worst ideologies that's ever happened on the face of the earth. And it always pretends to distribute wealth, but it ends up being absolute power for some. And think of the brutal conquests even before this in ancient times by people that craved worldwide dominion. The brutality of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Romans. Think, too, of the disastrous outcomes of power-hungry individuals described in the Bible. This is right in the Bible and not in, only in general history. As David neared his death, Adonijah, the son of Haggath, he exalted himself. He said, I'll be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Now, Adonijah should have known that that wouldn't work. It didn't work very well for Absalom. But he still tried to do what Absalom did. He wanted that power. The craving for power is what destroyed him. And this craving for power destroyed Saul. And yet the craving for power, it blinds those who have it, for they become so intoxicated with its potential, it leads them to turn even against their own families, like Absalom did, like Adonijah did. And as we consider this terrible truth of history that plays out again and again of absolute power corrupting absolutely it's exceedingly astonishing that God who knows all this future and who therefore could perfectly well see what men would do with power on the sixth day of creation he bestows on man what looks like absolute power it's an astonishing thing now, in our last two sermons on Genesis 1, we laid out the biblical teaching concerning what is the apex or the pinnacle of God's creation, the creation of man in God's own image. It's not even said of angels that they were created in God's image, only of man. This is the highest honor among created beings. The highest glory of the original pair of human beings is that they had been created as the very visible representatives of God. They were his image bearers, intellectually, morally, personally, equally, and wholly, both in body and soul. Adam and Eve were fashioned after the very pattern of God himself. What could be higher than that? But the wonders of their original creation didn't stop there. Having been created in the image of God, their place in creation and the functions that were given to them in that creation, it was nothing short of royalty. That's why we've entitled this sermon, Our Royal Ancestors. They were royal kings in creation. Now in the outlines that were provided in the bulletins, you'll notice that from the end of Genesis 1, we've noted four functions and features about those that God created in his own image. Their dominion, their genders, that is male and female, their propagation, and their diet. But in this sermon, we're just going to look at the first of those things. We're going to look at their dominion. And we'll save the last three points for what I think hopefully will be one sermon. Next, next sermon. I'm not going to preach another sermon today. 
But we're going to look just at this issue, their dominion, which we see especially in verses 26 and 28. Now, only because mankind was created in the image of God was it even appropriate for God to grant to that man and that woman the awesome position and the awesome responsibility of dominion over the entire created order on earth. In verse 26, we read of the divine intertrinitarian discussion between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they're discussing this dominion. God says, I'll make them, I'll make, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And he discusses what he's going to do for him, not only to create him in his image. He says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the bears, birds of the air, and over the cattle, over the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now the word that's translated dominion, it's not a complicated word. It means exactly in Hebrew what it means in English. It means dominion. It means power to rule, so to speak. That's, it's just a simple, simple word. It's a very easy uh, translation here. It means to rule over, to have dominion over. And the same word is repeated in verse 28. And in that verse, there's another word that's added to it. There's the word subdue. Notice, in addition to dominion, verse 28 is subdue. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, etc. Man is to subdue the earth, and he is to dominate the creatures of the sky and the land and of the, of the water. He is to have dominion over them, and of these two terms, the word subdue, it's the stronger term. It has the idea sometimes of a force that goes along with it. Sometimes it's used of subjecting somebody to slavery, the Bible. In other places, it refers to treading something underfoot, as in Micah 7.19, where we read of God that he will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Same word is used there, of subduing. He will subdue our iniquities. He will tread them underfoot. And in some places, the word is used to describe the military subjugation of a city or land. In Numbers 32, 22, Moses speaks about subduing the land. And they subdued certain cities. We read of that also in the accounts of Numbers, etc. And these references, they suggest something of, of violence sometimes in certain contexts. They, they suggest force. You, you, don't, you don't just uh, conquer a city that comes out to fight against you by saying... Oh, well, let's just be little flisby friends today. And let's, just, let's just have a little... No, you don't do that. You subdue them. You, you, you beat them into subjection. That's what happens. That's what, that is how sub, subduing something takes place. And so often this word suggests a display of force. But as we're going to see, the kind of dominion that's envisioned here in Genesis 1 is not the dominion of ruthless subjugation. So there are different contexts in which there is that more forceful type of subduing and that which is not of that nature. And it's significant that this stronger term is used also of subduing the earth. It's used particularly, I should say, of subduing the earth here. It's not a, a, God doesn't say, you're going to subdue people. You're going to subdue people into, through military conquests. That's not what he's saying. You're, in, in fact, he, they don't even subdue Creatures that said that they are to subdue and they will subdue the earth. It's an agricultural term. Subdue the earth. Or it could be translated subdue the land. Here in Genesis 128, and this is paralleled in meaning in Genesis 2.5 where it's said of the garden that when it was first created, there was no man to till the ground. You subdue the ground by plowing it, by planting it, and you bring it into a place where it's going to produce crops. That's the idea. And the same idea, therefore, is expressed in chapter 2 and verse 15, where we read that God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. The exact same word is there. Now, I shouldn't say the exact same word, but the exact idea is there. But even though the word for subjugation of the land is stronger than the word for dominion over the living creatures, the combined force of these words, it, it, it's still astonishing that God does this. When we think of what absolute power does, God gives them what seems like absolute power. Think of it. God raised human beings, 
male and female, to the position of being kings in the earth. They're supreme over the created order. Now, this doesn't mean that God was giving them permission to just go devastate the land or to subjugate the creatures with acts of cruelty. They've been created, let's remember, in the image of God. Therefore, they're called to be like God, as a heavenly, who's a heavenly ruler. In the exercise of their dominion, they're, they're God's representatives, God's image bearers. And it's only humans that have been endowed with this royal status over the creative order, those, those that have been born and created in God's image, that have that royalty. Now, a few moments ago, we sang from Psalm 8. And in that psalm, David expressed his amazement as he considers the vast heavens, as he considers the innumerable stars. And although he didn't have the Hubble telescope, he did live in a dry climate where he could go out at night like Abraham did. You could see, no doubt, thousands of stars that you and I can't see when we go out into our backyards. And as he saw the innumerable stars, and then he considered man, such it seems so insignificant compared to these vast galaxies, and he thinks of the fact that man is not like an angel who can just go like a spirit and go here and there instantly like a flame of light, lightning. And yet he says God has crowned this man with glory and honor. He's made him to have dominion, he says, over the works of his hands. And he's put all things under his feet. He's astonished when he thinks of what God has done for man. Now this appointment it's often been called by theologians the cultural mandate or the dominion mandate. Later on, we're going to examine the commands in Genesis 1 to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and uh, commands that are related. And coupled with the commands to exercise dominion over the creatures and to subdue the earth, Therefore, are these added commands. But these added commands of filling the earth and replenishing by filling it and, and populating it and so on, I don't think it's just it's simply referring to reproduction. They apply to all of life when you take all of these words together. They include the fact that God has given to man a certain dominion in the earth, including the social realm, including the economic realm, where it, as it were, subjugate the earth so that it brings forth economic prosperity. There is to be a spiritual uh, uh, rule, as it were. There's a, to, uh, there is this type of dominion that God gives birth to as man and, and the woman exercise the role that God has given them. So the commands to exercise dominion and to subdue, they support the interpretation of these verses as a broad, as some people call it, a world and life directive, as Curd puts it. Man is to be the overseer of an earthly kingdom. That's the picture. Now, with respect to this dominion mandate, I want you to notice this morning, and we're going to spend all our time, apart from some concluding applications, we want to notice two features that are highlighted in these verses. We want to notice its extent, and we want to notice its beneficence. And I'll explain the meaning of that word beneficence in a moment. But consider, first of all, its extent. This dominion was very broad. In verse 26, we read that it was over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It's very broad. And yet, even though it's very broad, it did have certain limitations to it. And it's helpful, I think, sometimes to think in terms of the opposite or what it was not. And it's helpful for us to realize that this dominion that's being spoken of here is not a dominion over other human beings. There is that limitation on it. It's over creatures. It's not over human beings. And this is extremely important in deciding bioethical and sociological questions. The reason why this dominion is not over other human beings is provided right in this passage. Human beings, unlike animals, are made in God's image. They're not to be treated as objects. They're not to be treated as pieces of property that you just buy and sell. They're not to be treated in that way and subjugated in that manner. And this is the key reason why kidnapping human beings and making them slaves, killing infants in the womb, 
human embryonic cell research, artificial human cloning, all these things are evil because they express, you see, an abuse of power. God has given power over creation, but not, you see, an absolute power over our other human beings. These practices place man in the position of absolute power over other creatures. Absolute power, it corrupts absolutely, just as we've seen at the beginning of this sermon. And this doesn't mean, though, that there are no God-ordained authority structures. There is authority in the home. God has raised up fathers and mothers. There's authority structures in, in the civil government where to respect the king, to respect the president, etc. There's different structures, but there's authority structures that are in the civil realm. There's also authority structures in the church that the Lord gives us instructions about. And so there are authority structures among human beings. But it is not, you see, of the nature of this absolute dominion that's here. There are authority structures, and God makes it plain that that in these structures there is to be submission to that authority. There is to be, on the other hand, not abuse of, of the part of those in authority, of those that, that they lead. But this is not over human beings, but it's being spoken of here in Genesis chapter 1. And also we want to notice that while the dominion mandate does not extend to totalitarian and ruthless authority over human beings, we should also notice with respect to its intent that the fall did not remove it. Even after the fall, there was this dominion. And we know this to be the case because David refers to this dominion. He uses the very language of Genesis chapter 1 in Psalm 8, parts of which I just read. We, we sang uh, parts of it just a moment ago. And in that Psalm, David, he speaks about, about this dominion in, in present terms. He uses the present tense. There's some people that say, well, this was all fulfilled in Christ, because Hebrews 2 speaks about how Christ ultimately fulfilled that dominion. But David doesn't say man will have dominion. He speaks about what he now has. He's astonished that man, in, in, in all who, what he is, and all of his limitations, that God has given him this honor to be, as it were, a king in the created order. So even after the fall, there is this dominion mandate in force. And you can, maybe I could just read, just to reinforce it, a few verses there from on Psalm 8, beginning with verse 3. He says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you made him a little lower than the angels, and you crowned him with honor and glory and honor. He's speaking about something that's already been done, something that still exists. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. So even after the fall, Man occupies this royal place among God's creatures. And this dominion mandate, as it's called, along with the responsibilities and opportunities that go with it, this is still in place. And the main difference, though, now is that both man and the rest of creation has now come under a curse. Sin has entered the world. So people exercise dominion in a sinful way now. The ground has been cursed. Man must have dominion over it. It was to yield abundantly. But now weeds and insects hinder its productivity. It doesn't yield its produce without the sweat of man's brow. And even apart from just trying to grow crops, it can be very difficult to deal with. I did one of the most unfavored jobs my, my, last Monday. Where I went out to a section just around our fence and it just oh, it gets overgrown with thorns and raspberry bushes and and because of all the rain, it was the perfect time. So I had to get my boots on and muck around and get my gloves on and try to keep the thorns out of my hands and get it all out. And we, this has happened as a result of the fall. And many creatures, while they live in the fear of man, they're hostile now to man's rule. They resist man's lordship. And so while man's dominion has not been abrogated, 
He has more difficulty in exercising it after the fall. Now, having noticed what scripture teaches about the extent of man's dominion, notice in the second place its beneficence. Now, the word beneficence, I've chosen that carefully, it refers to what is beneficial. You see how those words relate. It confers a benefit upon others. Beneficence is doing good for others. It involves acts of goodness and of kindness. And to clarify what we're talking about when we refer to the beneficence of this dominion mandate, I think it's helpful for us to, to sometimes contrast things that are the opposite. I think that this will clarify it. And so what I want to do is take you through four things that are the opposite of this beneficent type of dominion. And the first thing I want you to notice that it's not. It's not reckless abuse. Now, because Christians believe what Genesis 1 says about this dominion, Christians are often accused of being anti-environmental. Now, some anti-Christian environmentalists, they accuse even the book of Genesis as giving a license for environmental destruction. And, of course, this does nothing of the kind. The only way for Genesis 1 to be forced into that kind of an interpretation is to take the words about this dominion totally out of context. Take them out of context both from this very passage and also from the rest of the scriptures. For one thing, this very chapter makes it clear that God is not condoning the reckless abuse of our environment. Even before he created man, again and again he calls what he's made good. At various points throughout the week, he looks at what he's made. He stops for a moment. He says, ah, that's just the way I wanted it. It's, it's good. It's just perfect, you see. And at the end of the week, he looks at everything that he made. And he looks at it with admiring delight. And he exclaims, this is very good. He intensifies his statement about it. This is very good. Now let me ask you a question. What artist would come after laboring for weeks, perhaps months, over a painting that he has made, and he comes to the place where he's perfectly satisfied? This is just the way I wanted that painting. What artist would, would think it's just okay for somebody to come in with a knife and just rip up that painting and tear it all up and just throw it away? How do you think that artist would feel about that? What artist, after spending months, perhaps, chiseling away statue? It has now come finally to the place where he looks at it and says, yeah, that's what I had in mind. It's good. How would he feel if somebody just comes in with a sledgehammer and busts it all to pieces, blasts it to smithereens? How would he feel about it? And even so, what we read here, it makes it absolutely clear that it's not okay. It's not okay with God for us to subject what he made as good and to subject it to abuse and destruction. It's not okay, dear people, to let the beautiful coral reefs become bleached and lifeless without trying to prevent that from happening. They're a masterpiece. As you see, what takes place in those beautiful creations and all the fish and the creatures, many of which only live around such reefs, as you see it being destroyed, there's, I think the Christian has the right attitude. If he, he, just, he doesn't want that to happen. And to just allow it to happen and, and don't think about it at all, this is to despise, you see, one of God's masterpieces and just let it go to ruin. It's not okay, dear people, to hunt elephants unto extinction just to get some ivory. It's not okay to put garbage in the oceans and let it pile up and pile up and pile up as it is now in the, in the Pacific Ocean. Right now there's a mass of garbage that has all drifted together in the Pacific Ocean. It's called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. It has a surface, and they've used a very scientific way of measuring it, with 30 different boats and planes flying over and calculating it all in terms of how big the size is. It's calculated to be 1.6 million square kilometers. This garbage patch is twice the size of the state of Texas, three times the size of France. And this mass of plastic, it disintegrates 
And as it does so, the microscopic particles of plastic are ingested by marine creatures. And it's, it's, it has a devastating effect, not only on these creatures, but let's remember this goes into our food chain. We eat those sea creatures. Go look it up online. Look at the pictures online of this great garbage bag. It's just absolutely awful. It's not okay, dear people, for us to do that to God's creation. As Christians, we're not okay with God's beautiful earth being destroyed. Now, please don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that the animal and plant kingdom are to be regarded as equal or superior to humans. But if you've never taken the time to do so, I would encourage you to watch some of the nature shows that are available, various platforms online and television shows and so on. And the almost infinite variety and beauty of what God has made, it's absolutely stunning. Now, sometimes you've got to put up with a little bit of extreme environmental stuff that's set along those ways. But it's still very edifying, I find, to see what God has made. There are things now that they have seen at the bottom of the oceans never were discovered until recently. And it's not okay, people, to destroy God's masterpieces. Now, another reason why we know that the dominion mandate doesn't encourage reckless abuse is the way that the terms that are used in Genesis 1 are used elsewhere in the Bible. For example, the word translated dominion in this place, in Genesis 1, it's often used in a very benevolent way elsewhere. For example, using the exact same word for dominion in 1 Kings 4, verses 24 and 25, there's a description about how Solomon's dominion, and here's the same word, it resulted in peace on all sides. Judah and Israel dwelling in safety, each man under his vine, under, under his fig tree. It's a picture of prosperity and of peace. It's not a picture of something beaten down and, and abused. It's the opposite picture. And the same word is used of the Messiah's dominion in Psalm 72, a dominion stretching from sea to sea, a dominion that includes delivering the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. In a similar way, God forbade the Israelites to exercise harsh or ruthless dominion over the Israelite slaves. And here we're talking basically of indentured servants who are paying their debts off in that way. They didn't have such a thing as, you see, bankruptcy. They actually paid their debts off. But you're not to be severe, he says. You're not to be ruthless. And even if you have some control, you're to remember that he's a brother. And especially when we remember that the words of Genesis 1 about the dominion were spoken in an Edenic situation. In the Garden of Eden, before the fall, it's hard to imagine, you see, that God has in mind any kind of ruthless, destructive implication with these words. And even the stronger words translate as subdue. It's used not with reference to living creatures, but to the, of the earth. And the word doesn't necessarily even then mean ruthless subjection. As we noted before, it's used, for instance, in Micah 7, of God's compassion in subduing our sins. So the beneficence of this dominion is not reckless abuse. Secondly, it is not survival of the fittest. It's actually the theory of evolution, you see, not the doctrine of creation that results in the opposite of the beneficence that is here. And the charge, you see, that unbelievers use against the dominion mandated Genesis 1, this could be turned right back, you see, upon evolutionists. They believe, you see, that man is a result of the evolutionary process. And what is the evolutionary process according to their doctrine, according to their theory? It's the natural selection of the fittest. The less fit, they die out, which means the death, you see, of the unfit. Now, what would consistency with that argument mean? It would mean that if man's activities result in the destruction of other species... So what? It's the survival of the fittest, after all. Let it all down. Doesn't matter. Just stomp it all down. They're just unfit things. They're not, they're not to be kept alive. What does it matter, you see? As long as man survives, he's the fittest one, you see. 
The species destroyed are nothing more than species that are unfit. They couldn't survive the evolutionary struggle, so they say. So why would we worry about their extinction? That's the way evolution works. And since all the animals are out for themselves, and so they're all out for their own survival, they don't have any care for other animals. Why should human beings be any different? We're just animals after all, too. That's the argument. And after all, according to the evolutionary argument, man's just another animal, so why should anybody get upset if man's survival in advance results in animals dying off? If our actions result in wiping whole species out, it just goes to show that we're the fittest. You see where that argument goes? Now, one vignette, one little incident from popular culture, I think, illustrates where consistent evolutionary thinking leads. In the cartoon series, The Simpsons, I won't ask you to raise your hands if you watch The Simpsons, but maybe some of you have been a little bit older than just uh, tweens or whatever. You remember The Simpsons back in the 1990s? And there's an incident, it's an episode called The Old Man and Lisa. And the villainous industrialist, Mr. Burns, he says on that incident, in that episode, oh, so Mother Nature needs a favor. Well, maybe she should have thought of that when she was besetting us with droughts and floods and poison monkeys. Nature started the fight for survival, and she wants to quit because she's losing? Well, I say hard cheese. So that's the argument, you see, of the evolutionist. It should come to, as no surprise, therefore, that cultures that have been built on evolutionary assumptions are the worst guardians of the natural world. The worst ravaging and the worst desolation of the environment has occurred in countries where of atheistic communism and of Hinduism and other non-Christian worldviews. The awful garbage mass in the Pacific Ocean is primarily the result of the governments of China and India allowing people to dump their garbage into the rivers that flow right out of the oceans. So all the garbage, all the plastic bags, all the broken plastic, it all goes out into that great big huge place that you can see even from space. So you see... The dominion, obviously, that we're talking about here is not survival of the fittest. The third thing we notice about the beneficence of this dominion mandate is that it's not imbalanced. The creation account of Genesis, it's followed by the more intimate account in chapter 2 of the creation of Adam and Eve. And it speaks of the garden that they were to till and to tend. In chapter 2, Adam and Eve are specifically charged with the care of the environment in which they were placed. They're to tend the garden. They're to care for it. And the whole account to provide, you see, a fine balance of the relationship between mankind and the environment that God has placed under his derived authority. Now, this healthy balance is not found outside places where the Bible has little influence. For example, in Eastern religions, such as Hinduism and Buddhism, they tend to neglect developing the garden. It's just a god, you see, so to speak. You've got to let nature just be the way it is, and you don't tend it, you don't develop it. You just kind of let everything grow wild. And it's one of the reasons why such societies have a tendency to be unproductive. And the opposite extreme, it's found where materialism and industrialism destroys the garden. You see, one extreme just neglects it, and the other extreme destroys the garden to maximize economic gain. Whether it's through the smog-producing factories of China, the strip mines of, of West Virginia, the slag heaps of English Midlands, or the dead rivers of Romania. You just do it all, you see, because that's, that's, that's what we have to do to make money. As one writer puts it, we should not presume on God to pick up our garbage for us. And then there's the extreme of the pantheistic ultra-environmentalists, or the greens, that tend to elevate the environment above the legitimate needs of human society. And there's a grain of truth in what they champion. We are to care for the environment. We're to be concerned about 
the air we breathe, and so on. But due to their virtual worship of nature, they bring unnecessary hardship on human beings and hinder what mankind could accomplish in a remarkable manner in the use of the resources that God has given. And oftentimes it leads to onerous things that are being put upon society. It would have been far better for scientists to develop ways in which to have cleaner air, to have less smog, and, and to develop other ways of, of, of energy and the like. Because of this worship you see of the environment, it goes to, the, it goes to imbalanced extremes. And it's the dominion mandate you see of Genesis 1. This provides the perfect balance. Here God teaches man both to respect nature and to subdue nature so as to shape it in such a way that it will reflect the generosity, the beauty, the order, and the glory of its creator. And now notice with me a fourth contrast with this beneficence. It is not independent. We are not to behave as if we are independent lords as we exercise this dominion over creation. Mankind was, as the church father Gregory Nazianza so eloquently put it, he is king upon the earth, but subject to the king above. In other words, even though God has made his kings on the earth over creation, he's given dominion over all of creation, we are accountable kings. We're accountable to the king of kings. And even though we are kings over the earth, we are stewards. We're kings, but it's as left, we're like house slaves that have to give an account now to God. And along these lines, theologian von Rad correctly states that man's dominion is derivative. It's not absolute. He writes, just as powerful earthly kings to indicate their claims to dominion erect an image of themselves in the provinces of their empire where they do not personally appear. So man is placed upon earth in God's image as God's sovereign emblem. You see what he's saying here. Back in ancient times, they would put statues of themselves to remind people of the authority of the king. And he would put those images around. So he's saying in the same way man and women created God's image, they're like that. They're reminders of God's sovereign authority. They've been made in his image. And he goes on to say he is really only God's representative Summoned to maintain and enforce God's claim to dominion over the earth. Now this practice, this perspective, this is extremely practical. As you're driving down the road, what is it that just keeps you from rolling down your window and throwing your candy wrapper out the window? What does it keep you every day from throwing your Burger King cup, styrofoam cup or whatever it is, the styrofoam, you just throw it out there in the ditch? What does it keep you from doing that? Is it because you saw there was a $500 fine for littering perhaps? Some, some roads, they have those kind of signs posted. Is that the only reason you don't do that? If you have a balanced view, you see, you don't have to be motivated with that. The reason you don't do this it's because you're not an independent king. You're not just free to do whatever you wish. You're not free to just trash the environment, trash the world, no matter what the consequences are on others, making it ugly and making other people have to pick it up. You don't do that, you see. This is practical, you see. And also we need, by way of practical uh, understanding, we, we need to remember that we live in a world of finite resources. And I don't have, didn't have time to research it, but I read recently of all the predictions that people have made, of, oh, we're going to run out of this in 20 years, we're going to run out of that in 10 years. And all these predictions, again and again, over scores of years, they just again and again, they're totally false. They've been proven false. But even though that is the case, and people get hyperventilating over, over finite resources, it is nevertheless true that this is not an infinite planet. It is certain, it is finite. But Christians that trust in God, they don't get panicked about the whole situation. They don't suppose the world is going to run out of everything in 20 years. They remember that the resources of this earth are finite, and so they're prudent in the way they use those resources. As they build a house, 
They'll think about such things as energy efficiency. Even as I was growing up, before there was all this madness about environmentalism, my dad paid us a penny every time we would shut a light off. And mind you, this is uh, about 60 years ago. There's a little inflation upon a penny, so I, I would not advise you, you parents, if you do that, to pay your kids children just a penny. There's a little bit of inflation involved. But it, was, it wasn't so much that he, that he was so concerned about that. He wanted to teach us to be careful with God's resources. He didn't want us to be wasteful. And it all comes down to this. God has entrusted the earth and all its fullness to us. So we must avoid the panic, you see, on one hand, of the extreme environmentalists, while at the same time, we must remember that we are to manage our resources wisely as those that always live under the eye of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And this perspective is also a help to us as we try to present a biblical worldview to unbelievers. The cultural apologist Francis Schaeffer, who, a great philosopher, theologian in the 20th century, he said that it's only the Christian that has the right attitude about a tree. You say, well, that's kind of interesting. Let's have a theology of trees. So he gives us a theology of trees. The Christian respects it as a tree that's been created by God. Therefore, he doesn't condone chopping it down just for the sake of chopping it down. But he's also free from the pagan sacred grove taboo about nature. And so he's quite relaxed, you see, about chopping a tree down so that he might build a house. And at the same time, he knows as a Christian that having chopped down a tree that for future generations, for consideration of how to manage this creation, having chopped down a tree, he's going to plant another tree. And so you see there is a balance here. And we can convey this, you see, to, to, to overturn such misunderstanding, you see, of the Christian teaching as we speak to them about what the Bible actually teaches concerning these things. Well, I want to conclude with some other words of application. And the first thing that I want to say by way of practical lesson is that man is a special creation distinct from animals. And here I especially want to address anybody here in this room. You're wondering about the truth of Christianity. Maybe you're a young person and you have heard a lot and you just still wonder about it. You hear different things taught in school. Or maybe you haven't been raised up in a Christian home and you're here and you're hearing these things and you've begun to think about, well, what, is the Bible true? And it's right that you seriously consider. It doesn't help just to be gullible, just believe everything that comes down the pike. That, that doesn't help. It's helpful. You need to evaluate the things you read and the things you hear. You're careful. You check things out. and There's something good about that, you see. In a previous sermons on Genesis, I presented biblical and scientific reasons to believe why we believe what the Bible says on the very first page of the Bible. And here I simply, instead of going over all of that, I simply want you to compare, my friend, the common belief today that man is just another animal. He's just part of the survival of the fittest. He's just part of this whole cog, you see. Do you really think that this evolutionary doctrine of the survival of the fittest, it paints a solid foundation as to how to live. Is this a good foundation for ethics? And here, I call you by way of contrast to admire instead the wonderful picture the Bible gives of the apex of God's creation, man, even in his pre-fallen state. Here is a foundation on which to build solid thinking and solid action. Man bears God's image. He's to represent God, therefore. He has a special place in creation. He's not just another animal. And as such, you see, he has a place of lordship. And yet that lordship it needs to be used in a way that reflects that he is subordinate to the king of kings. This is a wonderful, balanced presentation. And if you're wondering about what to believe and, what, and what's true and what's not true, Here's a message of hope, you see, uh, something that, that makes sense. 
And here's also something that helps you out, if you that have struggled with your self-image. It's a reminder, you see, of what God made you to be. He made you to be a representative of God upon earth. This is a lofty calling. It's a reminder of those also who lift themselves up above others, that they have to answer to the king of kings. There's a check, you see, on this dominion. And here is the loftiest of all standards, the standard of so living that we are reminders to others of God. We are image bearers of the gracious, wise, benevolent creator. But then also another lesson, God has sanctified secular tasks. At the time of the Protestant Reformation, the reformers, they laid great stress on the biblical truth implied in Genesis 1. The truth made even more plain in Genesis 2. They lay great stress on this truth that all of life is sacred. In every job, every task, it becomes holy when it's done with an eye to God. Luther stressed that it's not just the monk praying in the monastery that engages in holy work. It's also the maid milking the cow. She's doing something he taught that is just as holy because that's her calling. She's fulfilling her calling. She's doing her job. And she does it to God's glory. And later on, theologian Emil Brunner, he pointed out that man's call to subdue the earth is what distinguishes human society and history from the changeless beehive. Now, by the way, this is not to slam somebody here that works with bees. You have dominion over bees. You reflect God's character. I'm talking here about the bees. The bees just kind of buzz, buzz around. They go in circles. They go to plant, get a little thing. They go here, and they, they just, it's an endless circle. It's, it's, it it's, doesn't have that kind of significance that the life of human beings have. That's what he's noticing. Now, the dominion mandate, it means, therefore, that secular tasks such as keeping the garden. These are the same high spiritual importance as ecclesiastical tasks, such as preaching or, or serving communion. Dear mothers, when you change the diapers of your baby, you're doing something that pleases God. When you wash the dishes, you're glorifying God. You're serving the Lord. God is pleased with that. God doesn't want you to have a house that looks like it's just full of garbage and full of disorder. He's, he, he's pleased when you seek to do, such an, and to do what you do in such a way as to bring glory to him. The 17th century poet George, George, George Herbert, he expressed it in a wonderful way. One of the great hymns that we have right in our hymnal, hymn number 555. Teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see, and what I do in anything, to do it as for thee. All may of thee partake. Nothing can be so mean, that means so lowly, which is with this motive, for thy sake will not grow bright and clean. This is the famous stone that turns all to gold. For that which God does touch and cannot own, or own cannot for less, be told. God has given us, even in our secular occupations, He's given us ways to glorify him, and these are honorable. This is part of the way in which he's assigned us to maintain and to exercise dominion in his creation. And a related point is this, that our work is part of our noble calling. In the ancient Mesopotamian text, the Enuma Elish, the deities that sided against Marduk, the king, the supreme god, these deities that went to war against him, you see, they receive as their sentence the onerous task of taking care of the earth. It's a terrible job, they thought, to have to take care of the earth. These wicked gods, they're going to get that job. And the whole picture is that manual labor is wearisome. It's beneath their dignity. They're gods, after all, you see. And it's imposed upon them as a curse. And so in response to their cries and the pleas, you see, Bart, they say, Mario, please don't do this to us. They cry out to him. And they build a house for him, and they do all kinds of things. Marduk, he changes his mind, and he decides to create man. And he says, let him be burdened with the toil of the gods, that they may freely breathe. Let the gods be free of all that. But poor man, he has to do the work. And so he severed his arteries, and from his blood he formed man, and he posed toil on him, and he set the gods free. 
So man, you see, in that ancient story of creation, is depicted as one that's consigned to wearisome toil, all to relieve the gods. And this couldn't be more opposite than the biblical picture. Our work, by the grace of God, dear people, it becomes pleasure to us. It becomes a sacred act of worship. And even though there is the thorns and there is the effects of the curse, there is still joy that we can find in pleasing God. Our work is part of a noble calling. No task performed for God is ignoble. And then finally, we need to add this, that the nobility and the dominion with which we labor, it must be restrained by remembering that all must be done for God's glory, not as an expression of independent power. We're not ruthless kings to do whatever we want. Our dominion is not an ultimate. We don't have absolute power in that sense. We have subordinate power. We are accountable to God. And therefore, we are those that need to be redeemed now. We have sinned against God. We have abused the roles that he's assigned to us. We don't like the fact that, that we sometimes have to work for others and, and we have to do things for others and other people have authority that we don't have. We like to be the boss over people. We like to get our way. And therefore, we have strife in our marriages. Therefore, we have strife in the political field. Therefore, we have strife in the church. It's a jostling for power, you see. And we, we like this absolute power, you see. And all of this teaches us that it's a wicked thing for elders to, have, to exercise tyrannical absolute power. It's a wicked thing for husbands to, be, to, to beat up on their wives and, and to go yelling at their kids all the time and, and beating up on them in a merciless way. That's not the kind of authority that God has ordained. It's, it's not God's picture, you see, even for governors and for people in the state to do that kind of thing. We are all subordinate to the Lord our God. And therefore, this whole authority thing that we talked about, this whole absolute power thing, it seems like God gave it to us, didn't it? But we messed it up, didn't we? We sinned. We twisted it all. And therefore, God, to take care of us, he had to send somebody to this earth to show us how to do it right. He sent his son. We rejected him. We didn't want his authority. We crucified him. We hated him. And yet, what did he do? He showed the kind of power under that he wants us to manifest. Power over people by washing their feet. Power over people by serving them. Power over people by manifesting love and kindness and grace unto those that need it most. And for us to be like that, we, we need a Savior. For you to be like that, if, you don't, if you're not saved, you need this kind of a Savior. You're always going to be struggling, you see, with power. You think that you're going to escape this trouble. You think you found Mr. Right, and it's going to be wonderful when you get married. It's coming, my friend. There's going to be struggles. There's going to be difficulties. And until you come to the place where you see that God's way and God's way alone is the right way, until you surrender to him, until you surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, until you come to him, that he might be your savior, that he might change your life, that he might change your struggles and the way in which you react to different things that happen to you in life, it's never going to be right. And one thing doesn't work out, you say, well, I, I, I should try a different thing. It won't, it won't work out until you surrender, until you come to surrender the use of this authority to the authority of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and until you surrender to the righteousness and to the perfect example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and bless you that you did this stupendous thing. You gave your creatures such dignity and honor and authority. And yet we confess that we have abused that authority. All too often we have been those that in some way or another 
seek after absolute power, and that absolute power corrupts. We plead with you, Lord, that you would change our hearts. We pray that you would enable us to manifest the kind of beneficent authority and rule and living as you have assigned unto man right from the very beginning. The kind of care that you showed yourself to your creation. Lead us, we do pray again and again, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to this one who came and went about doing good, as Peter puts it, always serving people. Help us to be like that. May our dominion not be a lording it over, but it may be like the Philippians 2 type of dominion that we sang about at the beginning of this hour. That kind of dominion that led a Savior to a cross, that led a Savior to surrender that which could have been grasped after, even earthly honor and glory. That which led him to take on the nature of man, even die, and even die the death of the cross. Teach us, Lord, of our Savior and what you would have of us. We pray this in his precious and glorious name.